TUC Archives, the soundtrack of a 1995 documentary film. TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Who's Counting? Marilyn Waring on Sex, Lies and Global Economics. A classic from the film on radio archives of TUC Radio. The more that you smoke cigarettes, or the more that you have automobile accidents, the more growth increases. Now, I'd be fairly unlikely, having smashed my car, to come home and say, darling, don't worry about it, we've just contributed to the national income of the country. <laughs> That's the voice of Marilyn Waring, author of a book on women in the world economy entitled If Women Counted. To this day, a persuasive and vivid argument against endless economic growth. At age 22, Marilyn Waring became the youngest member of the New Zealand Parliament. In her second term, she was appointed chair of the prestigious Public Expenditures Committee. There she became familiar with the gross domestic product system and decided to disclose its pathologies in a film, her teachings at AUT University in Auckland, and really her life as a feminist economist. After nine years in Parliament, Waring precipitated the 1984 elections by threatening to vote for the opposition-sponsored nuclear-free New Zealand legislation. Prime Minister Muldoon said that Waring's feminist anti-nuclear stance threatened his ability to govern. Marilyn Waring resigned from Parliament and began traveling the world to explore how the fate of women and of the earth are irrevocably tied up with the deadly pursuit of economic growth. Much of her quest is recounted in the 94-minute documentary by the Canadian filmmaker Terry Nash. This radio program presents over half of the soundtrack of the movie because in addition to being a beautiful film, it is a compelling, intriguing, and very intelligent explanation of the GDP system and possible alternatives. Marilyn Waring speaking at a public meeting in Canada. The more that you have automobile accidents, the more growth increases. I wouldn't run my household like that, and I can't think like that. I would consider that a loss, you know. I would kind of consider that a debit. <laughs> a cost, not a benefit. National income accounting doesn't have a debit side. As long as the activity passes through the market, it's good for growth. Let me give you a very easy example. The voyage of the Exxon Valdez. Now, the Exxon Valdez is most likely the most productive oil tanker voyage ever known on the face of the planet. Now, if it had simply loaded up its oil in Alaska and made its way down the west coast and discharged into a bunker, it would have been a moderately productive voyage in economic terms. But if you want to have fantastic growth, it's very good idea to ram your tanker into an iceberg. <laughs> Immediately there are the insurance costs and the new tanker. This is great for growth. Then there are the civil legal proceedings and the criminal legal proceedings. 
Immediately, of course, there's the payment for the cleanup operation. Then down the way a little bit, there are the compensations to fisher people and the compensations to the tourist industry. And of course, there is the film, the television rights, the book, the various newspaper and media exercises that go on. A fantastically productive oil tanker voyage. It all added to growth. Nobody stood there and said, Deary me, just lost an oil tanker. Better subtract that from the national income accounts. I think most economists place a, a affirmative value on being incomprehensible. There's some exceptions to that. John Kenneth Galbraith, for instance, writes comprehensibly. But Marilyn, because her goal is to be understood, she understands very well that if people don't have the information, they can't act on it. In Canada, we've signed a free trade agreement with United States and Mexico. We hear that it's a whole question of productivity. This is going to be good for economies. This is going to boost our GNP. We look across to Europe, and the same thing is happening in Europe. The Maastricht Treaty is signed, and all these countries are saying, well, yeah, this will be great for, we'll be coming together. This will be good for our economies. How does someone like you react to that? Well, it might change GDP figures, but you're starting from the wrong premise. I mean, all of these decisions were based on the wrong figures in the first place. For 10, 20 years, we've had these cliches, we've heard this rhetoric, you know, inside or outside discussions on free trade. You tell us things are getting better, it's perfectly obvious to us. Our air is getting worse, our education systems are failing the poorest people, there is more poverty, there is more homelessness, there are more housing crises. And I suspect that the unease that is in Canada and in the United States, and let me tell you, in Mexico, <laughs> about NAFTA has to do with the fact that it doesn't matter what they say, GDP might grow up, but GDP is utterly unrelated to the well-being of a community. It tells you nothing about levels of poverty, it tells you nothing about the distribution of poverty, it tells you nothing about primary health care, educational standards, environmental cleanliness, and folks have realised that this unidimensional economic fabrication just doesn't bear any relationship to their lives. It was 1975. It was International Women's Year. I was 22 years old. And I put my name in, and sort of six weeks later, with some horror, <laughs> recognised that I'd just been chosen the candidate for a safe seat that I couldn't lose. Honorable members of the House of Representatives, you meet here today as members of the 38th Parliament. Marilyn Waring's no-nonsense approach to parliamentary politics earned her respect early. In just her second term, she was appointed chairperson of the prestigious Public Expenditure Committee, a position from which she aired criticism of the effectiveness of controls on government spending, the accountability of politicians, and the dead hand of bureaucracy. In a small country like New Zealand, this is the sole budget appropriations public accounts committee of a parliament. So we review everything of, in terms of the whole 45 government ministries and uh, departments and trading divisions. And 
I can still recall, you know, interchanges when they were briefing me in my office and I, they would teach me something and I would say, but that's preposterous or that's crazy or that's ludicrous. And they would say to me, oh, well, yes, it is, but those are the rules. And I couldn't believe that these enormous paradoxes or pathologies that I was discovering were part of an international economic system. I thought, you know, maybe it's just we make bad policy in New Zealand. Other countries started to invite me there as their guest. And when you went there, you could ask to see their chair people of public accounts committees, their treasury boards, uh, their budget appropriations committees. And I began to realise, hey, it's nothing to do with New Zealand. These are the rules everywhere. And I, I developed very early a, a kind of, it was a personal technique, which was in any community that I went into, I'd asked until I was introduced to a woman my age. Well, Tendai was a 14-year-old uh, who lived in the Leuvelt in Zimbabwe. And I'm interested in the, the work days of young women because uh, the International Labour Organisation specifies that under-14-year-olds don't work. We're speaking of 16 to 18-hour days every day of the week. And all of the activities that they're involved in in this time are unrecorded. They're called non-productive, they're called uh, uneconomic. These women are apparently at leisure during these enormously work-filled days. Let me tell you about my day. In the morning, before I can wash, I must walk five miles to fetch water. When I get back from the well, I wash things for the children, then I cook them some food for school and for the rest of the day. Then I go to gather firewood, which I use for cooking. When I come back, I tend the sheep and goats. Around six o'clock, the cattle arrive, then I milk the cows. I spent my evenings worrying about how to get water for the next day. And that's how I spent my day, every day, until sunset. And the translator asks, and what do the men do? <laughs> <laughs> a man in the crowd answers. A man's day is quite hard. First he must supervise the women and children because they all come under his authority. Then he has to decide who will herd the cattle for the day. And then he worries about how to get food for the family. It's perfectly obvious that the people who are visible to you as contributors to the economy are the people who will be visible when you make policy. And if you're not visible as a producer in a nation's economy, then you're going to be invisible in the distribution of benefits. And wherever I was, this was the world situation for women. And at the so-called end of their working life, because they don't stop working till they die, but at that point, the government then says, well, not only have you been invisible, but now you are welfare. 
Now you are a dependent on the state. <laughs> now you're one of our obligations. You know, so you've got this extraordinary choice. You go from being nobody to being a problem, in spite of the fact that of all the people in the population, you just worked harder than anybody else for all those years, except you probably didn't get paid for it. It's becoming part of a, of a global situation for me now. I mean, I'm able to make analogies between the unpaid rural women in, in Bangladesh or in the Philippines and the woman back in my constituency whose work is also invisible. She too is economically inactive and economists record her as unoccupied. Ben is a highly trained member of the US military. His regular duty is to descend to an underground facility where he waits with a colleague. When I wrote this, it was a colleague, but now due to drug abuse in the US military, it's with two colleagues <laughs> for, for hours at a time for an order to fire a nuclear missile. So skilled and effective is Ben that if his colleague were to attempt to subvert an order to fire, Ben would, if all else failed, be expected to kill him to ensure a successful missile launch. Well, we're, we're trained so highly in uh, our recurring training that we take every month in simulators like this, so that if we actually had to do it, it would be an almost automatic thing. There wouldn't be time for any reflection until after we turn the keys. Ben is in paid work. He is economically active. His work has value and contributes as part of the nuclear machine to the nation's growth, wealth and productivity. the mid-70s, New Zealanders had begun to demonstrate against the visit of uh, nuclear-powered or nuclear weapons-bearing ships to New Zealand. Well, the nuclear ships issue wasn't just a matter of not having nuclear weapons in New Zealand. It was a whole question of sovereignty. Here on the wharf in Wellington, by treaty, New Zealand was prohibited to store, possess, transport, use, nuclear weapons. This seemed to me to be uh, treated with utmost contempt by a so-called ally, the United States, who would draw ships up alongside our wards, you know, that were nuclear-powered or that would have nuclear arms on them. And so if we were to do anything, the least and the only thing we could do was to ban them from New Zealand from our territorial waters, from beside our walls. New Zealanders felt this very keenly. They didn't just feel it keenly as a, as a peace issue. They felt it very strongly as an environmental issue. There should be no nuclear weapons inside our sovereign territory. Those were the words of an MP who wouldn't back down, and that was the conviction that led to the Prime Minister admitting he couldn't count on her vote on the nuclear issue. 
Close to midnight and in high spirits, the Prime Minister with the announcement that shocks the nation. A snap election. Oh, no, six and bring them in fast. There's a sense of urgency about Parliament by now. I just withdrew from the government on the nuclear legislation and it forced uh, an election, forced an urgent election. Sir Robert blamed Waipar MP Marilyn Waring for not guaranteeing her support for his late night ride to Government House and the dissolution of Parliament. Quite frankly, I didn't agree with it. Um, but there you are, it happened and, uh, you know, you've got to respect Marilyn for her, her dedication and her beliefs. And as I say, that's democracy working. That's a prime example, isn't it, that, you know, uh, one person like that can bring the government down. She had the majority of people saying, well, good on you, Marilyn, for saying the things you are saying. And that she had a reputation for being fearless and speaking her mind, which I think was... It, it, ordinary people appreciated that very much indeed. The election was fought on nuclear-free New Zealand and it was a resounding victory. 72% of New Zealanders voted for it. Did you have any doubts when you walked across that floor? You knew that, that the government that was in power, the government that you were a member of, could, could fall? Sure. It always amazed me that th that's not what members of parliament realise they're there for. I mean, there ought to have been 86 other people sitting there thinking that. That's our job, it seemed to me. I mean, if you're elected to go represent the people, you ought to be ready at any minute, at any hour, at any day to go on principle. It's not a job for life. Got to stand up on high ground. The constituency was in good hands. Catherine O'Regan had taken over my old parliamentary seat. So I had some time for intensive research and I set off to try to unscramble the codes of global economics. When I came to New York to the UN Library, I didn't really have much idea what I expected to find. It was just that this is where the search kept leading me. Everyone kept saying, well, there are a set of rules, and they're called the United Nations System of National Accounts. And if you want to read the full set, this is where you've got to come. So it was either going to be the end of the search, or the beginning of a whole new one. The United Nations Statistical Commission has um, annual conferences. Uh, it is certainly dominated by uh, ideologues from the United States and works very, very closely with the World Bank and the IMF. And the difficulty is, of course, that hardly anybody from various governments, treasuries, those people who actually define macroeconomic policy, come anywhere near these conferences, have any idea what the new rules are, let alone have ever read them. When massive international rules are operating in a situation where no one who is implementing them is required to read them, then you know immediately you have a massive set of propaganda operative. Uh, but it was also 
so offensive, so chronically malevolent. And every day or two, I'd find yet another truly horrendous paragraph that meant I had to keep going. The worst day of all was when I discovered the paragraph, subsistence production and the consumption of their own produce by non-primary producers is of little or no importance. Well, after, I guess, about two months of reading through the system of national accounts, you can start to believe you're slightly crazed or that you're not reading things properly because the distortions between what is in the rules and what is real life that you observe is so extreme that I kept thinking I'm still missing something. And so again, I, I uh, went to talk to John Kenneth Galbraith and said to me, look, for goodness sake, write it. Stop talking about this. You've known enough, you've read enough, just write it. Well, I'm very proud of that. Uh, I have quite a few visits, so uh, not all are strong in my memory, but I certainly remember her coming to uh, see me. We had a long talk uh, about the role of women in the economic system. The whole tendency in economics is to uh, take the monetary economy, the pecuniary economy, not only uh, as the basic thing to be measured, if there isn't money involved, if there isn't a price, you don't measure it. And that leaves women's work in the household and a great deal of child care and so forth out of the national accounts. That is uh, enormously productive work both for human enjoyment and for the uh, welfare of the economy and the growth of the economy, that doesn't get counted. And it was this that uh, Marilyn uh, was concerned with, as indeed I would like to think I have been. The system was developed by John Maynard Keynes and Richard Stone, based on a pamphlet they wrote called, literally, The British National Income and How to Pay for the War and this became the basis of national income accounting. Stone was then recruited by the new United Nations organisation uh, to take the rules that he'd had in Britain and to enlarge upon them for international consumption. Of course he didn't really, he just translated what was uh, a system that suited the British Empire <laughs> into a neo-colonial uh, exercise for the whole world. And so by 1953, that set of rules was imposed on every country, including all the newly emergent independent countries. It's called the United Nations System of National Accounts. And to a significant extent, it governs all our lives. All nations must conform to these rules of economic measurement or they cannot belong to the United Nations. They cannot borrow from the World Bank or secure any loans from the International Monetary Fund. Important decisions are made with these figures, decisions which will determine whose needs are met first. Decisions on how to spend your tax dollar. Decisions on killing the planet. Decisions on who will live or die. 
These measurements are highly selective. So what is included and excluded in this system? The system includes everything that goes through the marketplace. Everything which has a cash generating capacity. In other words, the system recognizes no value other than money. Regardless of how that money is made, This means that there is no value to peace. This means that there is no value to the preservation of natural resources for future generations. This means there is no value to unpaid work, including the unpaid work of reproducing human life itself, including the unpaid work of women who feed and nurture their own families. This system cannot respond to values it refuses to recognize. This system leaves out the work of half the population of the planet and the planet itself. It is the cause of massive poverty, illness and death of millions of women and children and it is encouraging environmental disaster. This is an economic system that can eventually kill us all. That was the voice of Marilyn Waring in a documentary film about her ideas and her life entitled Who's Counting? Sex, Lies, and Global Economics. You heard part one of a one-hour radio program based on that film, directed by Terry Nash. You can see this film online at the website of the National Film Board of Canada, www.nfb.ca. Look for Marilyn Waring. Marilyn Waring is an author, former member of the New Zealand Parliament, and goat farmer. Since the film was released in the U.S. in 1996, she has become professor of public policy at AUT University in Auckland, New Zealand. Come back when TUC Radio returns to hear why the GDP makes war the biggest growth industry of all. The international trade in arms is the biggest growth industry of all. The five permanent members of the Security Council are also the five leading arms exporters in the world. Killing people, or preparing to kill them, is considered very valuable in the international economic system. Arms exports account for more than half the trade surplus of the developed economies. But the death, homelessness, injury, poverty and starvation caused by the use of these weapons is not even registered 
as a deficit. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. There you can also subscribe to weekly free podcasts. This program was produced off the grid with solar power. TUC Radio takes its name from an aeronautical term. Time of useful consciousness is the time between the beginning of oxygen deficiency and the loss of consciousness, the brief moment in which a pilot may save the plane. My name is Maria Geleuden. Thank you for listening. <laughs>